Ladies and gentlemen, it's 1995, and on Boxing Day of that year, a young, blossoming woman went to the cinema to see her first ever Bond film in a theatre. That's right, that young girl named Natalie Bohensky was, I'll surprise you, me. And this was the film. The USSR is gone. Timothy Dalton is gone. But we have instead the delicious 90s Bond who would come to shape the franchise. I speak, of course, of Pierce Brosnan, and the movie is Goldeneye. And with me, as always, is a man who loves to just jump in an old malfunctioning Russian tank and just give St. Petersburg a bit of a dust-up. It's Stuart Late! Hello, Natalie. Hello, everyone. It's my favourite form. It's my favourite way to get around. The amount of damage that you've been doing around Brisbane, Stu, in lockdown with your tank, it's... You know, it's, it's we, inconsiderate at best, I will admit. <laughs> I suppose we've all got to get through the pandemic the best we can. That's so right, exactly. You know, I got, I got to get rid of my stress somehow. Well, I mean, this is coming from the state of of Queensland where we live, where this state possesses the last ever World War One tank of a particular class. It's called the Mephisto, and I've forgotten what the act is. A Sturm Panzer. It's like a Storm Panther tank. Panzer Bjorn. No way. That was that was an old podcast. No, that was, yeah, his type of materials. But yes, Queensland, at the end of World War One stole a German tank, and now it's the only one left in existence, and we've got it, and we've put it in a museum. You can't get it anymore. I, I, think, I think fair's fair in that case, really. <laughs> well, apparently it was supposed to go to Sydney, but oh, when okay. it came, the ship came to Brisbane first, and the captain of the army unit, or, you know, commander, I don't know my ranks, went, guys, let's just offload this here. And someone went, isn't this supposed to go to Sydney? And he's like, no, 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 we took it, so it's staying in Brisbane. So we've got a tank stew is what I'm saying, and I've seen that baby close up. You can still see the bullet holes. It's pretty so amazing. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a really nice piece. So what I'm saying is, after this podcast, let's break into the museum. <laughs> steal the tank. Then steal a style, steal a tank, go Why for not? a joyride. Um, joining us on that joyride, although possibly by a Skype connection from his home in London, is our returning guest this podcast. I'm super excited because I know this is a man who very much is into thigh control and uh, the exerting <laughs> of pressure of such said leg Parts. Um, that was an ill-thought-out introduction. It's Tom Selinski. Hey. Uh, hello. Uh, I'm not quite sure what it is you're referring to there, uh, but I'd like to quickly deny all knowledge. Yeah, I was trying to imply that you, you've been using your thigh master and like to squeeze people to death with it, um, Xenia on a top style. That's not the case. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> British people are just so reserved, aren't they? They're just like, no, 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 you You've got that one wrong. That's that's not actually. They me. just will uh, not admit to thigh-based murder. <laughs> uh, Tom, you may recall from our octopusy episode, and uh, when we said, "Hey, we'd love to have you back," he chose Goldeneye, and here we are. Quick summary and spoiler for everyone else: I freaking love this film. I've loved it my whole <laughs> life. I still love it. It holds up. I defy anyone to come at me with criticisms, even though I have a few on the rewatch. But Stu and Tom, I want to get your immediate feedback, having seen the film again in the last you know, few days. Initial thoughts. My initial thought was that I thought it was really interesting that uh, they made such an elaborate promotional video for the uh, the Nintendo 64 video game. Oh. I think it's just really interesting that, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, you know, it's a hell of a marketing campaign. Oh. <laughs> All 
I know about that video game is it's been voted sort of over the years as like the best ever video game or something. And I've never played it. But I will say I was reading in my research that they redid the game about 10 years ago and they upgraded it. Yeah, yeah, but they upgraded it to be Daniel Craig as the Bond. And I was really offended on Pierce Brosnan's behalf. I was like, (laughs) you can't be taking his Bond away from him. Anyway, Tom, over to you. Goldeneye, thoughts? Yeah, I, I think it's fantastic. And I think it's not only a very good film in its own right, but one of the reasons I think it's so interesting is it's one of a handful of times that the Bond franchise has been in serious trouble and it's had to completely reinvent itself in order to to right the ship. I think the same thing happened with The Spy Who Loved Me. And I think the same thing will happen with Casino Royale. And it's because those three films worked that the franchise is still with us today. And it was interesting hearing you guys talking about 80s action movies on the last podcast. <laughs> because... My take on License to Kill is that it's a pretty good 80s action film and not a very good James Bond film. That, that's fair. It's that, far that's too, absolutely fair. It's far too grim and dark and people are being raped and dismembered and it doesn't have any of the kind of colour or glamour that I'm looking for in one of these more kind of fantasy films. But 80s action movies were absolutely eating James Bond's lunch. You had Terminator coming out in 84. You had, well, actually probably the Patient Zero is probably Raiders of the Lost Ark in 81. Uh, mm. Lethal Weapon in 87, and then crucially, I think Die Hard in 1988, mm. the year before License to Kill. Absolutely, yeah. You see, next to Arnie or Stallone, Bond looks sophisticated and charming. Yes. But you put Timothy Dalton next to Bruce Willis's John McClane, and he just <laughs> looks like a wimp. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that, because the reason why John McClane is such an interesting character in that first film is because he is kind of an everyman. He's not an Arnie or a Stallone. He's kind of resourceful, but he is constantly scared and terrified and narrates itself as such, you know, like, oh, God, don't die, don't die. You know, there's there's all that kind of aspect to it that is in contrast to the, the Arnies and the invincible 80s action stars so i wonder how that played off against bond having no humor it's almost like the humor the timothy dalton relative lack of humor shone up next to bruce willis bringing this very fun everyman where you could really i guess envisage yourself as john mcclain i mean there's got to be a reason why john mcclain is still such a popular character for a lot of particularly men and i think it's maybe because you can see yourself as as him i've just taken over the conversation again back to you tom (laughs) (laughs) So I looked up some of the box office figures. I thought it was interesting because the Bond films have been coming out on this regular schedule, one every two years since 1977. And then they hit this legal trouble. So there's no Bond film for six years. Mm. Now, Living Daylights has done pretty well. It's made $190 million at the box office, which was a big improvement on View to a Kill. View to a Kill had made less than any Bond film since The Man with the Golden Gun. But License to Kill, and fair enough, as you said on the last podcast, there was a lot of competition that year, but it made $156 million. So it's still profitable. What's interesting is Die Hard actually made less money than either of them. Really? Die Hard only made $140 million. Die Hard 2, which is a, a significantly worse film in it, every respect. It is. It is a much worse $240 million. Film. Wow. But, but do you know how much money Goldeneye made at the box office? Let's do guess, because I think I know, because I was reading this earlier today. I mean, we're, we're, we're over $100 million? $356 million. Wow, in 1995. Yeah, it's a, it's a colossal sum of money. It's an absolute jackpot. So maybe it was maybe what the series needed was to take this enforced rest. Maybe six years off was required in order that they could have a rethink, retool some aspects. And so that the audience misses them, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so when we come back to it, there's a nostalgia, even though the thing that we're feeling nostalgic for isn't coming back <laughs> because yeah. almost, almost every key player has been replaced maybe apart from Desmond Llewellyn's Q. Well I remember in the advertising because that that story that I set up top is 
is is very, very true. This was the first Bond film I actually saw at the cinema because I was only eight or nine when Licence to Kill came out. So by the end of 1995, I'm giving away my age, but I had just turned 15. So this is like right in my teenage wheelhouse dreams. And it just totally got me. I remember seeing Pierce Brosnan announced as the Bond the year before in a press conference. And I remember the advertising campaign, which was just shots of Pierce Brosnan with the slogan was just, you know, the name, you know, the number. Like that's the the level of confidence that they brought to it, which is, you know, Pierce Brosnan has been cast, you know, he's the new Bond. This is the new Bond movie. But before we get on to our one minute challenge, Stu, I'm sure Tom has some insights, but it might be worth going through a little bit of that legal trouble and why there was such a big gap. Sure, absolutely, yeah, yeah, because it was a big gap. It's 1989 to 1995, right? Yes. So what's really interesting is the stuff I've sort of been discovering about Timothy Dalton and why and why not he didn't return. And I've always sort of, I think I'd heard rumours about a third film but hadn't really seen much of the full story. And it actually turns out that Broccoli wanted Dalton to come back pretty much the whole way through this 89 to 94, and then Dalton sort of finally resigned from the role in 94. And the reason was is because he said, yes, I really want to come back. I've changed my mind. I really want to do a third film and kind of bring together the really good elements of the two films I've done Mm. and create a third film that will be, as we said last week, his Goldfinger, you know. And Broccoli said, you can't just come back and do one film. Like this is a whole new, it's been too long, and if you're coming back, you need to come back for four or five films. Now that's the the word that I have and I don't know if they mean four or five films in total or another four or five after that which would take him up to Roger Moore level but my guess is if they'd actually got him to sign a contract it would have been an, another three picture deal because he had a three picture deal which is why yeah sort of assumed I think he would be doing a third one even after this long gap so my guess is they would have said okay well forget the previous deal we'll, we'll sign a new three picture deal and that would have given him five in total sure yeah and that would have been a good number I'm, I'm so sad having watched his two that he only got to like, like he you felt like that he was just sort of hitting his stride and then suddenly he's not a part of it anymore i agree with Stu because i you know one of the things about doing this rewatch has been the discoveries that you make and i have been startled by how much i have enjoyed embracing the dalton era and just seeing his time in a whole different light with i guess the benefit of years and maturity or rather as it is for me non-maturity at all (laughs) it comes back to me for that the benefit of having that break because i think viewed in the context of the late roger moore films going into the timothy dalton films what's striking is actually how little changes sure it's the same Mm. team it's a lot of the same principles at work it's the same director it's the same writing team it's the same uh minister for defense (laughs) returns, and casting a new actor has freshened it up in a a modest way that hasn't blown the doors off the way that Goldeneye Mm. does. And so I think if he had come back, maybe there would have been that same temptation to just keep on doing more of the same. And Goldeneye completely reinvents the Bond series. Arguably, that's what was needed in 87. Yes. uh, But it didn't happen. Mm. Uh, It was definitely needed in 95 because now, as we said, he's not up against cannonball run and towering inferno (laughs) john mcclane and rambo yes and the world has changed in the broader political context the ussr is no more and even though the last film that really had the ussr in it was uh, the living daylights because of course license to kill is south american drug barons because they were the main enemy to everyone in the 80s as we know but uh (laughs) 
the entire political system has, had changed and the fact is, and look, let's bring her up, but the fact that they went, yes, let's get in a female M and own some of the tropes about and some of the criticisms about the Bond character and the Bond franchise and actually bring in um, for, for a term that I have mixed feelings about, but the strong female character and create that sort of I don't take your shit 007 role and put it in a, a woman's mind and put it in someone who's a very analytical thinker, as Judy Dench's M is, particularly in these earlier films. And that's yeah, the where she, queen of numbers. Evil queen of numbers, that's right. And that's where they clash because Bond is a man of instinct and that's what she pulls him up on, saying, I'm quite happy to send you to your death, but I'm not going to do it on on your whims. So I think that that's, you know, moving into the 90s, moving into a more, I I hate to say moving into equality because it's never... <laughs> who's who's it's who's a asking? Term in, in connection it's a with the Bond term. franchise. Oh, it's just in terms of the world, Stu. Like it's who's, sure. <laughs> some of people are more equal than others. So I guess just that I don't know that that would have worked. It, look, it probably would have worked with Timothy Dalton and a female M. But I think you're right. The full reboot, and it's it's weird to think of GoldenEye as a reboot, but really that is what it was. As you say, it's a very different team. They don't keep any of the supporting cast apart from Q and I think that's a nostalgia thing and I think he would have caused outcry by not having Q. But he's clearly in he literally reads off cards. You can see him reading off cards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Poor old does. Oh he's he's beautiful. But um well let's having sort of established our general approval of this film, um we might go through our minute challenge briefly and see what kind of comes up and sparks discussion. So Stu it's so your turn to go first, I believe. Fair enough. Okay. Well, Lay it so on. the first thing on my list is Pierce Brosnan's good hurt acting. <laughs> what? Uh, Pierce Brosnan is the best hurt actor I've ever seen in my life. He just conveys pain in an incredibly convincing way. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know why. I just really noticed that. You believe that that man is in deep, deep pain. He does this thing with his face when there's, um, like, I, I'm thinking of the scene where at the very beginning, the pre-credit sequence where he's pulling the plane up and he's like got his hand on the and and his face is juddering and that happens at a a bunch of times where you'll see his face in the helicopter as well and he's got that real grit of the teeth and I think I know what you mean yeah he just is like that you believe you believe he's he's cracking he's had his ribs cracked or something yeah, like some, something terrible has happened he, it's, it's all up there on the screen that, that, that had never occurred to me before but i think that might be why i like his performance so much i really do by the way i think he's fantastic in all his films but i think he's much smoother than the timothy dalton bond but at the same sure. time he's much more vulnerable than the roger moore bond absolutely oh, we, we see that in this movie i mean we see that in this movie but but also in i know that we see it in subsequent movies as well he gets beat up a lot you know he's <laughs> Yes. He's definitely a Bond that, that gets the, the crap knocked out of him a lot. And, and he sells that beautifully. He's also a very, um, I don't know how, the word to say this, but with his relationships to the women in his films, and particularly with love scenes, he's like a very bitey performer. He's always kind of, <laughs> he's always like nibbling shoulders or, you know, you know, biting lips. And there's a real kind of sense that he's, you know, kind of crushing women against him. Whereas I found Timothy Dalton quite a romantic kisser and whatnot and there's a lot of like hands on face and a lot of like touching hair and stuff like that weirdly for such a dark grim bond um pierce brosnan's almost even in the tender moments he's always like biting someone's shoulder or it, I, it's a more aggressive aggressive romantic presence yes maybe that's just <laughs> something i picked up on and that says a lot about me but I, think, I 
think it ties into what you're saying, Stu, about he he sort of gets that push and pull of violence and love, you know, kind of on the same spectrum, flip sides of the coin sort of thing. It's interesting, though, because, I mean, he definitely seems less conflicted than Timothy Dalton's Bond. Timothy Dalton's Bond, possibly more so than Daniel Craig's Bond, hates himself. He hates himself. He hates what he does. You know, he's deeply, deeply uh, disgusted with with (laughs) his general life choices. I feel like this Bond is a bit more comfortable with what he does, but there's still that sort of uneasiness about him, which I really like. Well, the uneasiness comes from the revelation that it's uh, our old friend, Ned Stark, Sean Bean. Yes, exactly. That's number that's number two on my list, Sean Bean. Oh, good. Uh, Well, let's move the conversation to Sean Bean. Showing up to die again. Ah, oh, Sean. I, I remember I, this I, film coming out as well, and I remember all of the, the pre-production and all the announcements, and it's a very starry cast. I think it's something I talked about on Octopussy, that it wasn't really until A View to a Kill that the Bond film started putting stars in these major roles. There's a couple of earlier examples, but from GoldenEye on, they get the starriest cast they can. Mm. And so mm. there was, it was, you know, we, we have Sean Bean, we have Robbie Coltrane, we have all these fantastic actors. Mini uh, Driver in a tiny role. <laughs> Mini Driver in a tiny role. And they had to absolutely tiptoe around the fact that they weren't identifying any of these as the bad guy. Oh. And I couldn't believe it, because I don't know about you guys, but when I first saw it, the twist absolutely got me. I yes. stopped thinking about Alec Trevelyan long ago. Yes. And so I was totally suckered in. And then I went, ah, oh, but of course, in that, in that roster of famous actors we were being introduced to, they didn't tell us who the bad guy was. <laughs> that is, I don't, look, I remember Pierce Brosnan being announced and I remember the press conference had the two girls, two women, I should say, on either side of him, you know, flanking him. But I don't remember the announcement of the other cast, but you're absolutely right. Like they really kept that close to their chest so that the twist wouldn't be revealed. I wonder if you could do that nowadays because... You know, we all know with No Time to Die, Remy Malik is the villain. And I felt with Spectre, was it Spectre? Yeah, I felt with Spectre, damn Spectre. They cast Andrew Scott, who, of yes. course, was best known at that point for playing Moriarty against Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock Holmes. Best known to me, I should say, because I know he's a very, you know, lauded theatre actor. So he's probably better known for other people. But I think in terms of TV, probably one of the things he was best known for. So when he turned oh, yeah, up, fun. yeah, when he turned up in Spectre, I went, He's clearly going to be the bad guy because he's Moriarty. Like he just he does bad guy. He's next to Voldemort, and you're still going. Well, obviously he's the bad guy. (laughs) And I think what's happened is the fact that he's now the hot priest in Fleabag, and he's known. He's known far more, I think, now as the hot priest from Fleabag, and he's such an endearing character and such a wonderful character. He'd probably have a lot easier time playing that switch now. I don't know, but I think, for me, anyway, that's my opinion. If I if I saw him now, I'd be like, oh, is he in hot priest mode or is he in insane... <laughs> insane Moriarty mode. Exactly, so I'd have a bit more chance. So, yeah, I think what you say is, is right, Tom, because they choose people who are famous, but they choose still famous actors who are good character actors with all the Bond bad guys. Like, they don't get a Tom Cruise or a, I don't know, who's the famous bad guy. They don't get an Arnie. They don't get a... They they don't get what Batman films do, which is get... Having said that, they did get get Christopher Walken for Batman Returns. (laughs) (laughs) The Arnie or the Tommy Lee Jones or the Jim Carrey's or, like, they get really good actors who have a decent profile but who aren't, like, Hollywood actors. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, um, it's worth saying as well that I think, even though I think she was she was known certainly in the UK mainly from TV, mainly from sitcoms, 
that in 1995, Judy Dench was not a big star. This is what I wanted to talk about. She did lots of stage work. She was at the RSC for years. Uh, she was actually, she, I don't know if you know this, she was the original Grizabella in Cats, but, but she injured herself during yes. rehearsals, had to pull out, and Elaine Page stepped in. That's right. <laughs> and she got to so, then play Deuteronomy in the movie Cats. So. Right. Her biggest films before this were probably A Room with a View or 84 Charing Cross Road, and she's not the lead in either of those. But immediately after playing M, she becomes Queen Victoria and Mrs. Brown, and then Queen Elizabeth in Shakespeare in Love, which won her the Oscar, and then mm. she's Iris Murdoch and Iris, and then you know she's off and running. I think M made her a star. I don't think they cast a star as M. I think you're very right, because I remember seeing a documentary about her at the time, because she did mostly theatre and TV work, and we in Australia would know her best from As Time Goes By. Right, yes. Yes. Com, which they sort of really humorously um, reference in the next film, Tomorrow Never Dies, by having Jeffrey Palmer, who's her on-screen husband in As Time yeah. Goes By, as her kind of opposite number in the Air Force, I think. And they have a bit of a sparring match, and it's very cute for people who, like me, would often see As Time Goes By before the ABC News at 7 o'clock. Um, <laughs> oh, that, that, that was a little bit of sense memory right there. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> was, she a, yeah, was she a dame by this point? No. 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 Yeah, yeah. So, so she, she was just playing Judy Dench. In this documentary, she talked about how she never liked to watch herself on screen. And this was a documentary that came out around the same time as Goldeneye. And she says in this, I have very clear memory of it, her going, I never like to watch myself on screen because I think I'm hideous, but I'm going to go and see Goldeneye though. And then it cuts into her sort of doing all this prep work on Goldeneye because I think it was either just as it was released or about to be released. And she made that role her own. And absolutely, I think you're right, Tom. I think this definitely put her into the American consciousness it's funny these 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 women actors who have really good careers in the UK but then they kind of get into their 50s 60s and become massive stars like Judy Dench and Helen Mirren and playing very matriarchal roles all the dames who are in all the period drama sort of Maggie Smith for that matter Maggie Smith you know all these wonderful actresses who've had very long established careers but then they become movie stars in their later years and I find that really interesting it's like it's like as a as a as a film actor there's a really lot of good roles for you in your 20s and 30s and then things start to dry up in your 40s and 50s but then once you hit your 60s there's like roles again because everyone yeah, I say she wasn't a dame but I'm looking at Wikipedia it looks like she might have been made a dame in 88 which is surprising oh. to me wow and she got another another honor in 2005 but this is all uh, she made a double dame the, the British uh, it's all very complicated uh, so she was dame commander uh, oh wow of the British Empire in 88 and then order of the Compassion Companions of Honour in 2005. So maybe she was made a dame for her stage work. That is entirely possible. Goodness me. I assume she's the first dame to be involved in a Bond film? I can only imagine. <laughs> I mean, as in a, an anointed dame as opposed to Depending just, on how you hey, here's a, that term. <laughs> here's a bunch of dames. I love the word dame. I think, I think dame is... <laughs> It's one of those throwback words that I just I have a lot of affection for. And uh, like exactly. You <laughs> took the words right out of my mouth, Tom. But yes, if I can just go back to Sean Bean, as Stu was talking in his list, this is posh Sean Bean. Yeah, well, he's he's very refined. He's doing his double O act. I mean, all the double O's are very posh, very refined, very men of men of upper class, you know. Uh, so it's interesting. Uh, yeah, and, and you but but you do you you expect the northern accent and he comes out with hello james it's very strange <laughs> for england james for england. Yes. well i really only knew him and this is funny given we we're talking about timothy dalton but um I really, I think, first knew about Sean Bean because I what he was in that little remembered sequel series to Gone with the Wind called Scarlet that Timothy Dalton played 
Rhett Butler in and Sean Bean played a new character who was like an English lord who Scarlet eventually murders or something because he's horrible. Um, <laughs> again, Sean Bean playing a villain. Uh, but I think And dying. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of other things that I knew him as. But, Tom, maybe as someone who grew up in the UK, what was Sean Bean sort of best known for at that point in history, at the point of Goldeneye? I'm trying to think if he'd already done Sharp's War at this point because that was the thing that he was kind of known for. But maybe he hadn't. Just looking at his uh, – oh, no, I think he had. No, he had started, he'd started as that. So that was a big, splashy television thing that uh, – yeah, I think that started in 93. So that, that had got him a lot of attention. That was a starring role in which he did not die. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, is that the one, the series where he says bastard a lot? There's some, there's a clip on the internet that's just like a supercut of every time Sean Bean says bastard in that northern <laughs> accented way. It might very well be. It's like two minutes of just, you bastard, that bastard. And it's just, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's, northern accent is beautiful. But yes, this is posh Bond. And what an opener to have Bond be joined by a fellow double O. I don't think we've ever seen another double O in the field. We've seen them kind of turn up dead or in Octopussy, we saw the the double O three, nine running from uh, in clown makeup. From yeah, well, the, at, at the start of um, at the start of the living daylights, we have two other double O's who both get murdered uh, in the training true. exercise. Yes. Um, but we don't really see them very, very closely. This is like a rapport that they have. Like when they're mm. running around the Archangel chemical weapons facility, setting timers and all of that stuff. And then they're bantering with each other. They're saying, you know, buy me a pint and this is over here. There's a close the door. There's a draft and all this kind of <laughs> pub banter. <laughs> and that's new for Bond. He has that banter with yeah. a lot of people, but with well, he a- normally works alone. That's the that's the thing. He's usually a lone agent, and uh, this time better. he's all teamed up. Um, it's a I- great introduction to the new Bond, isn't it? Oh. Uh, I think uh, first of all, Martin Campbell just shoots this brilliantly. It all looks incredibly fluid and dynamic and very modern, very very different from what John Glenn had been doing for years. Yes, he holds back, letting us see Brosnan's face. We had that incredible yes. stunt off the dam oh, at the beginning, so good. and then finally. Brosnan's face is revealed. Uh, and yeah, all this stuff is new. So what I want to say two things about this opening sequence. First, I think it's absolutely fantastic. It might just be the best opening sequence in the franchise. It's certainly top three. But also, and it took me several viewings to appreciate this, it doesn't make the slightest bit of sense. <laughs> <laughs> in one very specific way. Okay. So it's bookended by these two incredible stunts. Mm. The bungee jump off the dam and then free falling after the plane. Yes. But let's just run that through. So we start on top of a dam, very high up. <laughs> now we're going to make a long jump all the way down to the bottom. Yes. Now we're going to go presumably horizontally <laughs> through this weapons complex. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to come out. And now we're on the edge of a cliff. <laughs> Where exactly You're so was that right. dam? It might have been a different cliff. I don't know. You don't tend to put dams on the tops of mountains. That's not how <laughs> dams work. <laughs> my god i never even thought about that everything else is so good it should be the last thing on your mind but it doesn't make the slightest bit of damn sense it's (laughs) almost like there's a top dam which leads to the (laughs) and then there's the yeah it's a dam built on top of a mountain tom that's (laughs) the only logical conclusion i can make tom you've blown this wide open i don't know what's gonna happen i can't watch this the same ever again Oh, my goodness. Yes. Wow. 
That's absolutely true. I thought you were going to say something about the fact that I still to this day don't understand with Alec Trevelyan and 006 and his death, quote unquote, death. Was he setting that up from the start or was he just shot to miss, uh, you know, survived by some luck and then decided to become a criminal baron? Well, or my, was my reading of it was with Oromov, isn't he? So I assume that it was set up between the two of them. But again, that doesn't make a lot of sense either. It's not at all clear how they could fake his death in a way that would be convincing to to Bond, who's standing feet away. Yeah, and like he, his his face is all messed up after the fact when he meets him again. He's got the full wounds on his face. But in that kind That's of because of the explosion, not because of the the gunshot though, because he blames Bond for that for for changing oh. the, the uh, yeah. I think I think it was the, all a uh, setup. I think it was definitely all a setup because uh, he thought there was six minutes on the time and Bond put it on three. Okay. And that, that's, why, that's why his face is all messed up, because he was expecting a, an extra three minutes. Right. Okay. So decades He was always country. evil. He was always evil. He was but, always you know. evil. But he hid that for so long from yes. Bond, and that's sad because, you know, Bond needs friends, and he was really <laughs> upset. And that, I think that's talking about pain. When he sees 006 shot, and he says, for England, James, and then the gun goes off. First of all, excellent sort of dialogue planning for Oromov to shoot him at that exact time. Um, <laughs> you know, really well set up, probably did some rehearsals, some workshopping, got it down to a fine script. <laughs> and then, okay, he's going to be over here. What I was interested about that opening sequence, something I've never noticed before, is that Bond does not kill anybody up to that point. So Trevelyan does. Trevelyan does. a guard early on, which is kind of a, a little hint that he might be a bit of a wrong one. Yeah, he walks right in and then stone-faced, opens up a door, sees a scientist and just bang with a silencer. And then as they're running in and they set the alarm off, which obviously Alec must have tripped because he says, you know, half of everything is luck, James, and beep, 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 what's the other half? Fate. Not there. But then he just starts shooting guys, whereas Bond's hiding behind. And now Bond is setting the traps, the the, the explosives. But it's still very telling that I noticed it this time and never had before that he is the guy who shoots and much more violently, whereas Bond kind of is knocking people out or you know, punching them down rather than actually just yeah, like... Yeah, and you, and you wonder if that was, if that reflects their their double O styles as well. Like like if, if we'd seen other missions from them, whether they would have reflected that as well. Yeah. Or, or whether he put himself in that position because that's where he needed to be for the ruse to work. Yes, that's right. Just an interesting observation that I noticed. And also that kind of setup is repeated, I think, definitely once, but almost twice again through the film. So at the very end, when they're in Alex's lair in the Cuba dish underground lair, which is essentially like a IBM office, because it's just, it's it's not like a lair of old with Blofeld and with people in matching jumpsuits, like all running around with spanners and stuff. He does have a it, giant uh, evil doom screen, though, which I yes. quite like. Well, you've got to have a doom screen. It's the equivalent <laughs> to a giant war room floor map in Game of Thrones. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just all people in jackets typing on computers. It's great. I just was looking at that this time going, it's so ordinary. What did these people think when they got hired to go and work in a command centre underneath a dish in a mountain, but they're all just, I don't know. It, it don't go down that path, Natalie. Yeah. Don't go down. That, 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 leads, that leads straight to Austin Powers. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I, absolutely. Realized, I realised what I was doing, but I thought it was fun. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so Bond is hiding behind big canisters of liquid nitrogen trying to set an explosive and then comes out with his hands up but also in the middle of the film when they're in the library in the archives they're trying to escape Urimov and they go into the library and they're running across these um corrugated not corrugated like what would you call them 
uh, gratings, like metal grating. Yeah, metal grating floors, and they're kind of hiding behind bookshelves. And so to me, there was like a thematic resonance of that opening scene that continued through the film. And that's he my. Definitely uses, yeah, he uses a lot of proximity mines, which actually uh, feature quite heavily in the GoldenEye N64 game. <laughs> Do you just want to talk about the GoldenEye game? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'll just keep mentioning it. It's fine. <laughs> no, no, you can tell me all about it. Uh, it's fine. But do you want to continue with your list now that we've um, talked about Sean Bean? And I'm sure. Yes, we'll- absolutely. Um, so the next item on my list is Famke Janssen, a literal femme fatale. And oh. she is absolutely fantastic in this movie. I love her so much. She really is great. And really, there is a line there, as we discussed during our Never Say Never Again episode about Barbara Carrera, who, Stu, just give us your impression of Barbara Carrera again. I mean, sorry, oh, like not, not your my, impression. My impression. I mean, <laughs> I mean, don't start saying that, you know, we need to now sign a sheet saying you're the best lover that anyone's ever had. I mean, I, I made you sign that off, Mike. <laughs> Every podcast I have to sign the... <laughs> Like, shoot, uh, we get it. No, no, but but she definitely, you know, uh, Barbara Carrera is the the spiritual uh, predecessor to uh, to Xenia on a top. She's having so much fun, and she's just such a completely over the top character. I love it. It's so good the way that she, because she's 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 always been a sadist, but you realize too. I realized anyway, like she's an absolute masochist as well. Like she's the full package. Oh, yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah. She enjoys inflicting and receiving pain. Yeah, and one of my favorite lines in the whole film is just when Bond parks the tank in that tunnel and they realize that the armored Soviet train that they're on is heading straight to them. And she goes, He's going to derail us. <laughs> and just has a smile. <laughs> Of like, you know, just this delight that it's great. And there's the occasional few people who kind of give it this look of like, what? Like Urimov on a couple of occasions, when, mm. or particularly at, at Seven Eye or at the satellite base at the start, uh, when she just is murdering everyone with machine guns, which is... Martin Campbell says that he thought he was going to get into a lot more trouble with that character than in fact he did. So that scene of her machine gunning everyone to death in Seven Eye, they shot a safety where she doesn't make sex faces and she does uh-huh. it so that they had it in case the censor said, you absolutely can't do this. And the censor didn't <laughs> breathe a word about it. The British censors apparently were really concerned about headbutts. There are, I think, three headbutts. The British censors are weird about headbutts. They have their own little obsessions about things. In the 70s and 80s, they were really worried about, I remember, like uh, samurai weapons, throwing stars and nunchucks. You couldn't have those even like seen. They all had to be edited out. So in the 90s, apparently they were concerned about headbutts. But uh, on a top making sex faces as she machine guns people to death, fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, even, even I mean, last, last week we talked about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in Britain were called the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. Hero Turtles. Uh, because they could not be called ninjas. What? Yeah, yeah. There's merchandise and everything. I uh, never heard this before in my life. That's insane. Yeah, no, True not story. anymore. I'm pretty sure now you guys get like yeah. TMNT. But I, I back in the day when the when the cartoon first aired in the 80s, they they had to be the hero turtles, not the ninja turtles, because ninjas were bad and and wrong and yeah, oh very strange. God. I think they 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 edited out some of the fighting scenes because there was a lot of like nunchucks and that sort of thing. Very strange. British senses are strange. <laughs> that is really weird. well. You often hear about filmmakers putting in scenes that they know will get taken out in the hope that that distracts the senses from other things that they want to leave in. I'm sure I've heard about that somewhere, but there's like the, as as you said, Tom, in that instance, it was a safety backup, but there's also like, well, let's put in this scene and we don't mind if that gets cut 
and they might be distracted by this bit of gory violence. But yes, Famke Jansen has is is really full on aggressively sexual, but there's an undercurrent of humor to her role, I guess, and maybe that's that's how she walks the line. So the sex faces weren't quite as obvious or something. I don't know, but she she does it so well and she's so this is not the right word, I think, but like charismatic is the right word, maybe. I was about yeah, to say exactly. charm. She, she has a comedy Russian accent, too. Like, I mean, you kind of blow past it. Like, it's 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 literally out of Rocky and Bullwinkle. She's <laughs> Natasha from Bullwinkle. Like, it's insane that they I let that it. be filmed. But it's great. It works. Whenever I do a Russian accent, you know, an impro or something like that, it's, it's always like that, Mr. Bond. The pleasure <laughs> will be all mine. <laughs> But I think that's, that's what's so good I... about this this whole film. This is a film that's being made by people who love Bond, who grew up with Bond. Yeah. And they can see how silly it sometimes is, but they're determined to have fun with it and never to make fun of it. Yes. Yes. And that's a Absolutely. really crucial distinction. And so, yeah, Anka Jansen's absurd Russian accent is exactly the right side of that line. Uh, that's a really good summation of this film, I think. And and you sort of see that, I guess, with maybe later Batman films and stuff like that, like people who grow up with something um, and even all superhero stuff, but when people who grow up with it and love it kind of can manage it. Finally get the keys you, of the kingdom. Yeah, then you can often get really good stuff if they are aware of it, the their subject matter's flaws or they don't take it so seriously that they can't you know, see its flaws and see its lines and wrinkles and spots and, you know, <laughs> not been photoshopped. Or, no, 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 uh, yeah. we, we're not on the Roger Moore era anymore, Natalie. <laughs> Where are you in your list, you? Uh, I was about to say, I'll, I'll quickly burn through the last couple of things. I, I had uh, giant dish lair, which is always fun, like the yeah. uh, giant uh, evil base. They get back to that in this. Um, I love Boris, obviously. Uh, uh, Alan Cumming does, is, a, is a great performance. Is he a new type of villain for Bond movies? Have we seen that character before? The geek. The, the geek? Have we had the computer guy? The, the geek? We, we've had like a nuclear scientist in, in Thunderball, but but he has like a, 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 you know, a change of heart towards the end of, of that movie. Whereas this, you know, this is like a secondary villain who's like the geek. He's the tech guy. As the yeah. accountant in License to Kill. Mm, that's true. That's true. Sort of the same, but with numbers instead of uh, computers. Yeah, I was I was just trying to place him. I'm just sort of thinking, who who is he like? Who who is he calling back to? And I'm like, I think they might have done something new. They might have done something yeah. different. It's it's well, strange. I mean, '95 was Windows '95. Um, sure. <laughs> it, oh, it look at the computers in this. The computers in oh. this movie. Oh. <laughs> I remember it looking so fresh and so high tech and oh, so, so high tech, so apt, you know, little, so... little sprites of their faces, Natalie. What? <laughs> little sprites of their faces on all their messages. Yes, and I love it when um, Boris uh, Natalia is, uh, you know, in that um, Russian IBM store pretending to order computers and needing access to the internet. She's trying to find yes. Boris, and then you see Boris in wherever he is, and he gets like this, blah blah, and it just says incoming email incoming email like <laughs> can you imagine every time you got an email that your computer would just go Wah! Wah! i mean this was well before the time when people had inbox zero and all of those exactly you know and spam for penis enlargement pills and um i also love that boris was uh, the original internet troll as well that was that was fun yeah yeah i remember he's like try again next time slog heads <laughs> And, well, and also, there's a lot of English punning, though. I find that very yes, strange. Yes, and all the Russians speak English. There's no actual, even when they're 
like Bond's not around, you know, Natasha and Oromov are in the car and they're all just speaking English. <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm overthinking it. Just don't overthink it. <laughs> well, speaking of overthinking it, the very the very last item on my list was uh, how does GoldenEye work, right? Like, like oh, I, think, the, the physical I think GoldenEye system. works. I think GoldenEye works, I think, but um, Trevelyan's evil plan does not work at, at all. But the idea <laughs> that an electromagnetic pulse would knock out anything electronic, that is, that is I think, pretty much true no no absolutely i I just mean physically like i mean it it has two voltron style keys and then a giant (laughs) like well what looks like a giant amber orb and i'm just not sure what the hell's going on there like what did they steal like like they blew up the computer they literally stole a key that's right they stole a key but i'm like the computer that controls it you blew it up like what did you steal (laughs) what is that thing oh (laughs) they replicated it maybe that's maybe that's what boris's job was is to build a new yeah that device that has the specific you know the big what he calls the the world's biggest credit card or something or the world's largest bank card or something like that it seems really strange i couldn't figure out (laughs) i don't think they would do that even a few years later that that specific that they steal the two keys and the weird key card thing yeah which i guess is like the driver like they both have to flip the keys so that that thing engages and controls the satellite but but surely you need the computer as well (laughs) like it's just well that could just be remade too, I, I guess I guess Boris rebuilt it at the other end maybe I'm not sure it, it just or, it really stood out to me I'm like that's weird yeah. you're right it is weird that they can rebuild the computer but they can't rebuild the key or they can yeah. rebuild the computer and just leave the key bit out yes yeah. <laughs> but you need to have that you know really fun like on my order turn keys like th- there's a couple of moments in the film where you see Bond sort of not knowing new technology and Natalia is kind of the symbol of a new world and a new type of espionage that, you know, computer driven, online driven one. Mm. And she's like, you know, Boris is online. I'm going to find him. I'm going to spike him. And is spike something that people do on the internet now? Was it something very nineties? Cause I-, I don't think it was something people did on the internet then. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's something that they came up with. It's some kind of tracing program or something. And then she'll say something and Bond will be like, huh? And I feel like Bond is the kind of guy who doesn't have an email, you know. But it's true. The film is sort of bridging those two worlds. Even by I think Tomorrow Never Dies, there's more computer involvement. And certainly by um, The World Is Not Enough and Die Another Day. But it's... Yeah, it's it's Bond is that, again, that cusp, that relic of the Cold War. Everything is instinctual. And pick up the phone, damn it. Look at all you kids on your internet sending messages, <laughs> horny pictures of yourself. What is strange about that key, which is an obvious MacGuffin, is that actually they don't do a lot with it. You'd expect it to be mm. uh, that Bond would get it out of their clutches and then he wouldn't be able to get away with it and all that stuff. And you're right, they just steal it and then take it to Cuba or wherever it is. Isn't it more that use it? Isn't it more that the access codes are what they're after? Like that's what they get the Russian guy before they murder everyone at Sevenaya. Oromov gets the main, you know, the dude. No, no, no. The, the access codes get them the key. Oh yeah. Yeah, that they right. enter the access go. codes that opens the safe that has that key in it that's what they're after just after a big golden key that's it (laughs) (laughs) i suppose that's easy film language to understand and you know now you probably don't need that because everyone's a bit more tech savvy but at the time 
Yeah, they're legit, yeah, like I, Boris. It's point. I mean, I mean, and it, it 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 doesn't mean anything really. It was I just find it really interesting, and it, it ties into <laughs> that whole thing with the, the fact that this movie was made in 1994, I guess, and and computers 95, were still 95. strange, interesting. Well, it came out in 95. It was uh, filmed, most of it was filmed in 95, I think. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah, because it was but released like, at the very end of the year. But yeah, like like it just sort of computers were still this strange unknown very mysterious thing that you could put in a spy movie and just sort of people wouldn't pick up on on the fact that this was slightly strange that what they were actually doing well speaking of computers as a quick aside um tom actually sent me a picture a few days ago which i thought was really really cool of sean bean and pierce brosnan filming their final confrontation on that um i don't know antenna spiky thing on a green screen on a, a green screen Not stage green screen, but they've, oh, they've right. done it sideways so when sean bean's falling to his death he's actually being uh, sort of uh, trundled along on a little cart oh, right. uh, from one side of the room to the other uh, <laughs> for safety reasons Jurassic Park is, I think, 93. 93, I think, yeah. And then before that, Terminator 2 was was 92. So CGI in the movies has matured while Bond has been away. Mm, and although there are absolutely. tons and tons and tons of Derek Medding's miniatures in this film, mm. there are, is the like, real use of CG for the first time. Sometimes it's just little grace notes uh, when that plane goes off the cliff at the end of that pre-title sequence. So that's a real stunt. That's a real plane and a real stuntman on a real bike. That's but amazing. The plane is flying and it's supposed to be, uh, I think, just so it doesn't, doesn't get in the way of the of the bike. And so they add that little CGI bit of snow, supposedly as the wheels of the plane go off the edge of the cliff. So little tiny things like that they can, they can add now. But digital compositing, green screening, is so much easier and more flexible than the old photochemical way of doing things so they can so i think that fight on the antenna is part models part close-ups in the studio part location work and they know that they'll be able to knit it all together uh, and even in some of the cases i think do sky replacements so the sky matches which would have been unthinkably difficult in 1989 yeah so they've just got this more this the, they've got a much wider range of tools at their disposal now and i think it all it all cuts together great it all looks completely convincing to me it still is so good the, the one thing i will say is um, you just mentioned derek meddings and this film is dedicated to him because he died i think just at the end of filming or something like that but this was the last film he did and the film's dedicated to him, but I noticed the models this time. Like I had a bit more of an eye <laughs> and went, oh, the, the water drawing back across the dish. Yeah, that doesn't look great. Yeah. That's... But did you notice all of them? When when Boris comes out for a fag just before Severnaya gets blown up, that's an in-camera special effect. He's standing on a forced perspective stage with a little dish behind him that's much closer to the camera than it's made to appear. Oh, wow. And that to me is completely seamless. <laughs> the models used for the satellite stuff are really good. And the, the planes, when the MiGs crash into them, um, really. Almost any time you see a helicopter, it's either a, a dummy prop or a model as well. Yeah. And that was the only thing that I noticed because I think it's maybe just like time has passed. So you you're yeah. my, So I saw Jurassic Park and I still think Jurassic Park holds up pretty well yeah but you can see that that it's special effects but they're really good ones that work and uh, still only because they're up. giant dinosaurs <laughs> yeah exactly exactly <laughs> I, think the only the, time, I think there's only two shots in jurassic park that don't work for me the very first shot of these the brachiosaur looks mm. a bit digital and the fight between the t-rex and the raptor at the end looks a bit digital 
But I think that the T-Rex chase with the cars looks fantastic. Yeah, it was super scary at the time. I remember seeing that as a kid. But, you know, GoldenEye at the time, it was so fresh and so new that all of these stunts and all of these models just seamlessly blended in. And it's just now having, you know, 20 plus years of exposure to CG that you can go, oh, my eyes sort of adjust a bit better to like seeing in the dark. We're like, oh, I can kind of see where that's a small thing. And maybe it's also too because we've been doing this rewatch, so I've become accustomed to <laughs> spotting the models. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I found so interesting about watching them in order is that you do get this insane jump, and we've talked about it already, but this insane jump in quality just across the board from License to Kill to Goldeneye. Like, you, you go from a 1989 picture made with most of the same production crew and a director who'd done the last four films to five or six years later or whatever it was, a brand new team mostly. And it looks like a modern film. There's a clear break in the canon between stuff that, to my eye, looks like an old movie and stuff that looks modern. So something that I, I, I look at and go, oh, that, that's a modern movie. This is this is the start of the modern Bond era. And, and maybe we're just getting to the point where that's not going to be true anymore, where we'll move on enough that GoldenEye is going to look maybe a little bit dated. But I think I think this the, the jumping quality was really startling to me this time. Mm. And it was thrown into into such stark relief by watching it in order like we're doing and just seeing seeing that jump in quality. You know, like you go, you go from a, an 80s action movie to a modern thriller, a modern action movie. And, and a spy movie. Like not, not mm. to forget that, you know, James Bond starts the film after the opening title sequence, which I do want to talk about because it's so good. Um, but, <laughs> you know, he's in Monaco, he's being assessed and then he ends up at the casino. So he's doing all this kind of work before he even gets his mission. He doesn't go in to see M straight away and, you know, he's he's in Monte Carlo. He's, you know, he's racing Famke Jansen, then you're on a top down the hill in the cars and then he seduces his assessor, his psychological assessor. Uh, <laughs> <and> then, <laughs> what happens to her, by the way? She didn't die, so I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a step up. And, <laughs> yeah, and then Bond just shows up in the casino. So yeah. she's gone where? <laughs> well, she's referenced by M later on as, as you know, Bond's boyish charms worked on her. So it's a, I assume that she did her assessment and uh, it was a thorough assessment. And then she just... <laughs> Flew back to London and went, yes, no, he's all good. He's he's fine. He's not a loose cannon at all. He's not got issues that are pent up. And he's not the kind of guy who will just openly chase another woman driving a Ferrari down a hill in a dangerous fashion. Uh, he wouldn't do that. That's not the kind of guy he is. He's the kind of guy with Bollinger on ice in his Aston Martin. As, speaking of which, the, the BMW, That's I've actually got that on my list. Are you finished with your list, Stu? That, that, that's it. I'm done with my list. So if you want to start yours. Okay. I, I was talking about Monte Carlo but I'll get to that. So, yes, my, my point about Monte Carlo is that all that stuff kind of happens without really understanding why Bond is there. Is it just by accident that he meets Xenia on the top at the casino and then they have a bit of banter and then he decides to follow her or has has he been already tracking the Yanis group as, as Money Penny's little um, message through his car sort of um, he takes photos and then she delivers a little report saying she's an ex-Soviet fighter pilot she's linked to the Yanis crime group so was he there it's not really explained why he's in Monte Carlo and why he's meeting these people and then you see the new fancy Tiger helicopter 
And he... um, that's something else that struck me this time as well. Who are all these people watching this helicopter be unveiled? Uh... It's not like some kind of super secret military helicopter. <laughs> yeah. Why is it having a big unveiling? Well, it I... needs a big unveiling. Why are there not like 20,000 people there like watching the Red Arrows? There's like 40 people in Monte Carlo. <laughs> yes. Are they the, the, the Monaco Helicopter Spotters Club? Well, I... What is going on? <laughs> well, in the, the helicopter was donated by or loaned by the French Navy. So maybe that was part of their, you know, requirements. We need to have a, a nice scene where we are shown as being, you know, having a sexy party in Monte Carlo. I don't know. <laughs> but you're right. It's, it's, it's on a, a Navy ship, the helicopter, invited dignitaries. And the fact that they, they <laughs> I, I, I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer. But the, I, what I did notice this time is that Xenia Onotop is on board because she's, you know, been hooking up with that admiral who she kills and then steals his ID. And I think Oromov might be using his ID. It's not really clear because they don't change the ID. They just kind of flash it. It's very weird. Anyway, she kills him with her magic thighs and <laughs> turns up on the Navy boat the next day to hijack the helicopter at its launch. And so she just makes her way down into the ship to find the pilots and is like, I've got a present from the boys back at the base and um, then shoots them. And then she and Oromov, I think, or someone else. It's actually not really clear, but, yeah, someone else. And they walk out. But that, they left that very late. Like they, the pilots are literally walking out <laughs> to do the test flight, and she shoots them, and nobody hears any gunshots. There's no other sailors, like, below decks who go, hey, that's a bit of a bit of a – you know, the, the pilots are not already in place. They're not – I would have thought they'd be doing pre-test checks. There's, a, there's actually rather a weird structure to this film. So we get this amazing pre-title sequence, which is fantastic. Crackerjack open titles as well. Uh, and then we get this like, kind of Pierce Brosnan runs through Bond's greatest hits. You know, he has a car chase. He goes to a casino. He flirts with a girl. Does and the then lines. He goes away for a bit. And then we have all this stuff at Severn Isle. These characters we haven't met before. We don't know who they are. Mm. Yeah. And it's 45 minutes in that he's standing in M's office getting his briefing. That's what it's I mean. It's very strange. And the next action sequence, well, do you guys remember what the next action sequence is? Isn't it the crash? Because he goes into the office and they're watching it live as the the MiGs. Yeah, so there's an action sequence there which doesn't involve Bond. And then he gets his briefing. And what's the next action sequence after that? Uh, I can't is it's it, the tank chase. Is it St. Petersburg? Yeah. Yeah, and that's that. now we're an hour and 20 minutes into the film. You know what, though? It doesn't feel like you're missing out on anything. It really doesn't. And I think that's one of the things that maybe later Bond directors and writers forgot about. There's not a ton of action in this film. But what there is, is maybe a slightly overcomplicated plot that doesn't really make sense. But there's really good characters all the way through. Yes. You don't notice that, that, that uh, hasn't been the action for a while because you've got Judy Dench, because you've got Robbie Coltrane, you've got Joe Don Baker, you've got all these fantastic characters. And it feels like the thing is moving forward, even though nothing's being blown up, no one's being shot at, no one's jumping off anything high. Mm. You actually don't need it. And what a test for Pierce Brosnan to try and hold all this together. What a test for him. Yeah, just going through. So there's Seven Eye. The action sequence there is not with Bond, as you say. That's with Natalia running around trying to survive and then getting out, climbing up out of the dish to, to get away. And then the next thing that I can think of is when Bond meets Alec Trevelyan again, in the graveyard with all the old Soviet statues, and then they put them in the helicopter and set... Yeah, and there's a very brief kind of set piece yeah. there where they have to uh, escape via the, he has to... <laughs> via the yeah. ejector seat. 
again, not really a sustained action set piece. Again, Alex Trevelyan does a little bit of what um, Christopher Walken, I feel, in Mayday in A View to a Kill, where they're just, like, really shit at killing Bond, and they have <laughs> yes. lo- so many opportunities. Like, Alex Trevelyan is always delivering these, like, well, Bond, I've, I've set the timers to six minutes, the same six minutes you gave me. <laughs> like, clearly you're talking about three minutes, dude. You're not giving anything away. Why didn't you just shoot them? Why didn't you just, like... Barbara he's... Broccoli apparently really hated that dart in the neck uh, at the end of that sequence. Because you're right, Trevelyan's absolutely got the drop on Bond yes. any time he wants. Mm. And uh, evidently there is a sniper somewhere who is armed not with a lethal round, but yes. with a tranquilizer dart. Yeah, is maybe the whole thing that he gets to witness his own death. Like shooting him is one thing, but there's that torturous element of, well, if we put him in, we need to destroy the helicopter. So let's do it with Bond and Natalia in there and they can watch their own doom as the helicopter's own missiles are shot forth and then turn around and come back. Wouldn't you disarm <laughs> the ejector seat? <laughs> Listen, they only just pinched the helicopter. They didn't have time to read the instruction manual from beginning to end. Uh, you know, it's a, boys with toys. We don't read instruction manuals. We just get in and start pl- pushing buttons. Yeah. Well, I think there's that urgency where they're driven in cars places and they're put in prison and there's an interrogation and there's some drama and the, the Russian minister and Bond have a bit of a, you know, like, what about you? What about you? And it's a big dick swinging contest. And then it's up to Natalia to go, shut the hell up. And yet you don't notice the action and then they have the chase where they're trying to escape and then they get her and he follows them in the tank and you're right and then the tank scene that took six weeks to film that sequence and they filmed a bunch of it in St Petersburg but I think most of it at the studios they replicated it back in um, the UK. They built a whole St Petersburg street so they they weren't able to get Pinewood so they essentially created a new studio it was a disused uh, airport or air uh, factory at Leavesden and they turned it into a studio. Apparently they needed that runway because that tank took about a minute to get up to full speed. Right. So for each of those tank shots, they had to back it way the fuck up. Ah. And then talk to the other on radio to go, okay, we're ready here, you're ready there, okay, go. And then you could hear it coming for about 45 seconds as it eventually got up to its top speed of about 35 miles an hour. And then finally, uh, they can actually do a take. So, yes, that took a long time to shoot. That would take a long time. And and the fact that they're able to get the tank to, like, look like it skids easily around the place, like, <laughs> yes. just effortlessly. And also, Bond can drive a tank. And I just love sure. that about he's, I just, he's Bond. He's Bond. I mean, he just is like, well, I'll just better be taking this tank then. You know what I noticed about this sequence that I have, I've never noticed on another watch? And it's really interesting, and I, I think it's really smart, is that they save the Bond theme for this sequence. Yeah. You know, they could have played it at a multiple points, you know, like like when he does the, the jump, when he does the dive after the plane, you know, a, a couple of times during the uh, car chases and things like that. But they save it until he crashes through the wall in this tank, which I think is really 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 smart i noticed that this time I, I i was thinking throughout the first half of the film i'm like they haven't actually played the bond theme yet that's really interesting and then as he crashes through the walls did it but it's interesting because there was a bit of criticism about the soundtrack or the what do you call it the score for this film because it has a fair bit of synth in it and i because it's bloody awful <laughs> oh you don't like it it's the one thing that comes close to sinking this otherwise across the board excellent film is this dreadful synth soundtrack it's just appalling if they had david if they'd found david arnold like six months earlier <laughs> this would have been such a better film 
Oh, my God. And so I, I, I might be anticipating what you're about to say. Quite late in the day, they pulled the bit of score that Eric Serra had written for the Tank Chase. That's and got right. another composer called John Altman to do a remix of the Bond theme to go there instead. Oh, OK. Well, see, I thought that was a deliberate choice on their part to sort of hang off until they... But it turns out it was just filling a hole. <laughs> yeah, I, You can see on YouTube a version of the Tank Chase with Eric Serra's original score, which I think is called A Pleasant Drive in St. Petersburg. <laughs> <laughs> Well, look that up. But you, you're right. Like that is when that tank comes crashing through the wall and uh, da, 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 it's so like I literally punch the sky, just yes, involuntarily right. <laughs> just punch the sky. And that's, I think, the moments that, you know, I remember as a kid just being absolutely enthralled by this film, you know, just the ambition of it to have a tank chase. And they they spend the time on the tank chase so, and it's never dull because there's always cars going into canals and people jumping out of the way and Oromov just drinking from a hip flask, you know, because he's <laughs> shitting himself as they go on. But yeah, the, the the score, I don't mind it. And I think maybe it's just the film has brought the score up in my estimation, but I definitely noticed it more this time around than previous watches, probably because of all of the other films that we've been watching. This one was very noticeably distinct for good or for bad you guys have seen that youtube video where they put new lyrics to the bond theme haven't you no no i haven't i'll, I'll send you the link but uh, they use some footage from this tank scene to the monty uh, norman dun, 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 dun. yeah that's right uh, because i'm a spy you can suck it uh, <laughs> uh, i like to fuck up the towns that i visit uh, <laughs> as you drive through the statue it's incredibly funny. <laughs> Please do send it to us, and Please I'll do. um I'll in, I'll include it in my um my written essay on the. It's uh, it's not very child friendly, but it is incredibly funny. If people are listening to us for child friendliness or reading my essays, which. I mean, it, there's just a lot of thirst there. Tom, I, the, the Living Daylights one is just a series of gifs of Mr. Rochester and me fantasising about all that entails. Like, they're, they're, they're not for children. Or for children who were children like me. Just a bit odd. A little bit too into period dramas. A little bit too into James Bond. Normal teenage girls. But that tank chase is, and the, the statue, when it picks up, I love everything about it. I like about the Brosnan Bonds, there's this... Uh, attempt to outdo themselves each time and they want a new chase with a new kind of vehicle each time so it's uh, motorbike versus helicopter in tomorrow never dies that's uh, right it's the the boat down the thames in the world's not enough yes. and mm. it's the yeah. hovercraft at the beginning of die another day sure uh, and oh, that's a really great way i think of freshening everything up and just saying well, what else could we do what, what haven't we done before indeed and surfing at the start of die another day <laughs> yes. i remember being convinced by bond surfing <laughs> it's sort of along the same lines as roger moore snowboarding at the start oh of a view to a kill something about anything surfy that it is in the same way that if Bond started to rollerblade, I'd be like, mm. um, <laughs> well, I mean, this would have been the movie to do it. 95, you're right in the sweet spot. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine rollerblading Bond? <laughs> it's just with like the lime, lime green neon colors that were popular yeah. at the time. Headband on, sweatbands, rocking his discman. I was going to say something else about that tank. Yes. What I love about the tank is that. Oromov gets Natalia to the train, which is um, Trevelyan's, Yanis's armoured Soviet-era deluxe train. But they seem to just not care anymore that the tank has been following them and what happened to the tank. Bond is somehow able to not only keep up with a car. Now, I imagine the tank can go really fast. If you give it the conceit, yes, okay, the tank. He just pulls up in the tank overlooking the train 
at the station. He just yeah. is on an overpass and he just kind of pulls up like dip, 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 has a look at what they're doing and then goes, okay. And then somehow is able to find and outrun them to a tunnel because they have a whole scene on board this train where they're talking to Natalia and they bring her in and Sean Bean's trying to kiss her in some kind of, again, weird flex on Bond that (laughs) you're a a girl that Bond is trying to rescue, so I must try to kiss you for um, ego. So Bond is somehow able to trundle off this overpass and then get in front of this train a good 10, 15 minutes, one would imagine, down the – like, can a tank travel faster than a train? (laughs) But yet they have this long I mean, scene. There was a shortcut. Yeah, that is true. The tank could <laughs> take. I, I think the answer, the answer, also, Natalie, is that the, the, a, a tank can outrun a train when James Bond is driving the tank. <laughs> and going over the track, not having to follow a deliberate track, railroad sure. track. Okay, fine. Yeah, I've just, been shown through in a thing, which is in his way. <laughs> I thought I had a, a humorous uh, time jump conundrum, uh, but as it turns out, no, I'm just you know, not putting my faith in James Bond, this character (laughs) that I love. So more for me is what I say. I will just quickly go because we've kind of talked already about a lot of stuff that I had on my list, most of which was just excitement about all this new stuff. So I had the first thing was just, holy shit, I still love this movie. Pierce, Judy, Sean Bean, New Russia. I love the kind of Robbie Coltrane in particular makes the jokes about the Russian free market economy will kill him. He's this ex-KGB <laughs> agent turned gangster. But is having Isn't real... that a fantastic scene? Nothing it's... really turns on it, but it's so good. I remember that being used in a lot of the pre-premiere publicity. Again, it's that it's that fine line between, because he's basically kind of quoting all of James Bond's catchphrases back at him. But this, I think, also is testament to Pierce Brosnan because... He's up against Robbie Coltrane, who is quite the force of personality. Mm. He's having all his catchphrases thrown in his face. Zukoski gets the drop on him and shoots bullets between his legs. Mm. And yet still, it's Zukoski who comes off second best. Yes. I mean, that's remarkable. And he's able to negotiate a deal, which is never really explained, but he just offers... Sikovsky a bunch of is it drugs or ammunition or explosives or something in order to get him to set him up with with Yanis. And that's where we find out about Yanis's history as a Lien's Cossack. Now, what is the relative politics of the Cossacks in this? Because I've been trying to read up a little bit about them. The Cossacks are obviously a very diverse group of people. There's not just one group called the Cossacks, but obviously what they refer to about there being a historical crime against the Cossacks after the Second World War and, uh, you know, them being sent back to Russia to, to be slaughtered by Stalin, essentially true what they talk about in the film. And so it's his revenge. Pierce Brosnan says, well, hardly our finest hour. And he's very uncomfortable. There's something nice about seeing like this representative of British foreign policy, you know, and that sort of thing, feel quite uncomfortable about being confronted with some of the poorer decisions of um, of days gone by. It does sort of balance out some fairly outrageous Anglo-centrism earlier on <laughs> when we meet uh, Joe Don Baker as the CIA agent, because this is all set up like the Americans are the under-budgeted amateurs uh, yeah. who have no <laughs> clue about spycraft. And the Brits are the pros, you know, exactly how it's done and have the budget and the clothes and the style. It's just ludicrous. So a little bit of knocking the knees out from under the Brits probably is no bad thing at this point. 
Yeah, that is true. It is so, and it's done as a comedy, like Jack Wade as Joe Don Baker is a comedy CIA agent, essentially. The fact that he's, you know, refuses to do the catchphrases. He's got a (laughs) shitty little car that breaks down. It is very funny, particularly since it's not canon, obviously, but in Never Say Never Again, uh, Stu and I remarked on the fact that the Q character keeps talking about all the accountants who are running the show and all the red tape and his budget's been slashed. and find the budget of the CIA. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, Lord, apples and pears. Um, sorry. <laughs> He's just a very, very cockney character. This is that reverse. This is, hey, it's 1995 and Britain is still relevant. And, and that's the other thing I think is really extraordinary about this film. Certainly, rarely among James Bond films, possibly uniquely, it actually has something approaching thematic unity. It's about what is James Bond's place in this new world. Hmm. And so the British government having betrayed its former allies is part of that same story, just as you you, you guys were talking about the fact that Bond can't work computers and yes. the burn walls come down. And now he's being uh, the, the, the enemy of somebody that he used to count as a friend. It's all part of the same thing. And that's really unusual for a James Bond film. There's some thought that's gone into it, and which is good. When you look good. at the slightly haphazard way in which it was written, that's even more surprising. They basically kept throwing writers at it until they found one they liked. And then I think he was on set doing rewrites. It wasn't quite as bad as Tomorrow Never Dies, which was a complete clusterfuck <laughs> as far as the script writing process was concerned. But it was a lot of iterations. And you see, you know, sometimes you'll do that and it works. And it usually works because there's a strong producer at the top who is looking at all these different drafts and making clear decisions. And again, it's Barbara Michael's first go as producer. You know, they've both been involved in the franchise for a long time, but this is their first go. It's, it really is just lightning striking and uh, then three attempts to get it to strike in the same place again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny that a lot of people seem to not regard Goldeneye very highly. Like sometimes you'll hear, and this will tie into another point that I want to make about Pierce Brosnan himself, is that this weird re-evaluation to the negative of the Brosnan era and sometimes I'll talk to people and they go, oh, Goldeneye was was a bit crap. And I'll be like, have you watched it? It's really <laughs> good. It's really engaging. It's, re- I mean, this movie is the exact same length as Thunderball, you know? It's two hours, ten. Well, no, no, Natalie, 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 I will I will just correct you there. I mean, uh, I'm just looking at my notes here. Uh, Thunderball is actually 16 full calendar days long. Um, it's very, I mean, again, it remains an oddity in the history of cinema. That they made a, a Bond movie, especially a Bond movie. I mean, you know, a, a taut action thriller that, that's yeah. 16 days long. It's just insane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's amazing that they were able to get the cinema space. <laughs> it's, it's, it's astonishing. You know, children were born during the screens. <laughs> I think people die. It's unfortunate that not only is Dying of a Day Brosnan's last film, but also... I don't know if you guys will agree with this, but for me, at least, the second half of Die Another Day is significantly weaker than the first half. I think there's some very, very good stuff in the first half of Die Another Day. And then basically, as soon as they go to Iceland, the entire film falls to pieces. Mm. And so that's what we're left with. And so then I think you're right. People in their memory reflect back on the Pierce Brosnan era. And what they remember is that dreadful CGI kite surfing. (laughs) But then I do wonder if it's recency yeah. bias as well, because we, we talked a little bit about uh, how Timothy Dalton was, you know, the underrated Bond for a long, long time. And he's had a bit of a renaissance in recent years, and rightly so, because he's fantastic in the role. But then I wonder if just the fact that Pierce Brosnan is the immediate predecessor to the current Bond, that he's fallen in estimations. And you wonder if the same thing will happen to Daniel Craig once he moves on. Yeah, yeah it's quite common for the, the new Bond to kind of repudiate the old Bond. Yeah. So Daniel Craig 
repudiates certainly what's happening in films like Die Another Day mm. and says, we're going to take this seriously. What would it be like to be this man? Uh, and so on. And so it will be interesting sure. if we now sure. go back to something yeah. lighter after Daniel Craig hangs up the holster. And then Daniel Craig's films are made to seem sort of doer and uninteresting and lacking the, the humour that we've come to love. And Rosman's films get reevaluated. I, I, I think that'll happen. That seems to happen with the franchise over and over again. I mean, the, certainly the, that's how I see Spectre. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, rewatch, pre-rewatch, you know, I might change my mind. I might just be being harsh, but... Um, the films also tend to repudiate their immediate predecessors as well. So you have Fiore's Only following Moonraker and to a certain extent Goldeneye following Licence to Kill. What I find interesting too about Pierce Brosnan is that I thought it was kind of inevitable that when Dalton went, no, I'm pulling the pin, that they would go to Pierce because he was contracted to do it when Dalton came in and then he got called back to Remington Steel and couldn't. And no, apparently they did go and talk to other actors. These are some of the people who passed. Liam Neeson. My name is James Bond. I will find you and I will kill you. <laughs> um, Mel Gibson. Not, no, not good. No. no. Hugh Grant. <laughs> now. Well, I, I just, uh, uh, if, if I could possibly bother you, uh, just just a quick, uh, quick, quick martini, if you could whip it up. Uh, shaken, shaken, uh, not stirred. Sorry to be a bother. <laughs> So if you think about if you think about it as Hugh Grant doing his character from Bridget Jones's Diary, the real sure, yeah. skeezy, well, like smooth but greasy, greasy smooth Daniel Cleaver from Bridget Jones's Diary, mm. where he kind of is trying to cast off that oh, I'm just a humble, charming man who's got away with words, and he's actually being more he's he's being male slutty to to yeah. just be really raw. That could fit. Not much of a fight in Bridget Jones's diary, though. Well, no, yes, that a is... A fight, a real fight! <laughs> that is a really hilarious scene from that movie, I will say, particularly given its, yeah. you know, period drama darlings, Hugh Grant and, and Colin Firth going at it. Hugh Grant is a more versatile actor, I think it's true. When he got the script for Four Weddings and a Funeral, he just thought, I cannot possibly play this. I've never met anyone <laughs> like this. This is ridiculous. And then he met Richard Curtis and went, oh, I've got that. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow wow but he ended up playing that part for like 15 years yes which exactly. was very different from anything he'd done before i've heard he's really good in i think it's paddington 2 like paddington bear 2 i, I was going to mention paddington he's too. fantastic yeah. as the as the villain in paddington 2 that that whole movie is wonderful but he's wonderful in it did you guys see a very english scandal no no not yet i think that was coming out like just as i was in edinburgh this time last year or maybe just after but i think it was like a bbc thing so hard for us to get here or harder so I must look it up and see if it's on Netflix or something by now. But, yeah, he um, plays Jeremy Thorpe in that, who was a famous politician in the 1960s and 70s. And uh, it's written by Russell T. Davis, and it's just sensationally good. Ben Wishaw is in it as well for another Bond connection. Ah, all right. I'll have to get that one. Because it's like a there's like an affair or something, isn't there? And that's right, a, yes. It was a, yeah, a, a, huge, a huge scandal uh, that rocked the, uh, the British establishment to its core. Because Jeremy Thorpe <laughs> was talked about as being a future prime minister, even though he was leader of the Liberal Party, which was a, a minority party. There was thought there was talk that there could have been a, a Lib Lab deal, uh, and he was a very, very prominent figure. But it was not to be, for reasons which I'll let Russell T. Davis explain. Ah, well, the <laughs> other person um, that who was going to be cast if Brosnan turned down the role, and this is a bit of a, a Doctor Who moment, 
for you both. Tom might already know, but Stu, do you have any idea? No, like, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think. Ninety five. Was it? Um, is it Sylvester uh, McCoy? <laughs> I wish. I wish. I wish. <laughs> it, it was. Was it? Was it Paul McGann? Paul McGann. Wow, he was great. Really? Can I just say I would be on board because I have always said Paul McGann is the thinking woman's crumpet. Oh, I ha- I've had a big crush on that guy for many years. Like he is just so charismatic and and like beautiful. He's not um he's not a tall man as Bonds go. I think Sylvester McCoy is always very irritated about this because there are lots of photos of the two of them together because McCoy has a kind of cameo appearance in the one-off TV movie that McGann yes. did as Doctor Who because he regenerates into Paul McGann 20 minutes in. And there were photos of the two of them outside the TARDIS. And they made Paul McGann stand on a box because actually they're the same height. <gasps> but McCoy is sort of playing this sort of comedy little doctor and McGann was playing this Byronic dashing doctor. Yes. They gave him, him an apple box to stand on to make him six inches taller, which he absolutely isn't. Oh, wow. wow. I, well, I didn't know that. Oh, my God. Paul McGann's 1.74. I'm taller than Paul McGann. <laughs> I've got like three centimetres on him. <laughs> Daniel Craig is my height, I think. He's like, oh no, he might be five ten. I'm five nine or five eight and a half. Yeah, I think he's five ten or five eleven. He's the shortest Bond to he's date, but he's shortest... so kind of muscular. Yes, he's he's tankish. Yeah, barrelishly tankish. And that's the other thing about Pierce that I like is that Pierce is fit and uh, he he's fit. Um, but he's he's fit, <laughs> but he's not the muscly Daniel Craig. Like he's, he's not. The... He's, he's very svelte. Yeah, he's and which I'd say is probably what he has in common more with Timothy Dalton and sort of. I think um, Sean Connery was muscular. Roger Moore was tall and lanky. So Pierce. I think Brosnan comes across as much kind of heavier and meaner than Timothy Dalton, particularly mm. in the in that gun barrel opening sequence, which they've oh. spiffed up, I think, beautifully. But they reshot Brosnan's version because they weren't happy with it. And I think the version we get is really kind of direct and powerful and muscular. And I never liked Timothy Dalton's version of that. It always seems a bit kind of fey to me. No, it's an excellent gun barrel. That's I think maybe that's why I like the music to it, because it's like this bonga, bonga, bonga. That's not, <laughs> I'm not doing the sound at all. But if you listen to it, it's it's more like I'm not a musician. I can't describe sounds. But yeah, and I think maybe that's why I like it so much, despite the music, is because his 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 turn and his is. And he looks so good in a tuxedo. Pierce Brosnan is just a handsome man, particularly in Goldeneye. I think the way his hair is, he cuts his hair for later films, but just the length and the, it's just all working for me. He's very, um, very shaggy in this film. <laughs> and he's got the hairy chest going and it's really good, you know? <laughs> well, like Daniel Craig is all smooth waxed he is, surfaces. He is a, a marble statue. <laughs> yes. And, and Roger Moore was just like hairless wonder, you know, and I can't remember Timothy Dalton. I don't even know. I think he was like a bit chest hairy, but yeah, Pierce Brosnan is like rug, he's, he's you know. He's got a thatch. He's got a thatch. He's got, that scene with um, Xenia Onatop in the hotel pool where he kind of yanks her out from behind a wall, throws her into like a spa room or something, and then she's basically trying to kill him slash hump him and he's like no 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 more foreplay and he's literally like she's got her legs around him he's crashing her into walls 
I'm surprised that got past the senses as well. Like it's really <laughs> intense. I don't know what I made of it as a 15 year old. I think I was just like, oh yeah, no, this seems fine. Because <laughs> it's like, it's a sex scene, but not a sex scene. It's a fight scene. They don't actually, like she's trying to kiss him and bite him and all this stuff. And yeah, why did I bring that up? Oh, just because he looks really good. He's all kind of wet and his hair's slicked back. And I'm very one dimensional when it comes to these films. I wish I, had, I wish I had more things of significance to say. Uh, oh, the car, the BMW, is a the bit Z3. of an anti. It's an anticlimax. <laughs> Big product well, placement deal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The whole Q scene is him describing this new car to Bond and the, the stingers behind the headlights and all the usual accessories and all that sort of stuff. And then you see them driving it in Cuba. First of all, how did they get the car to Cuba? <laughs> Like they literally That's leave Russia. Point. They leave Russia and, and Natalia's like, I'm going to come with you to Cuba to help you dismantle this satellite. And somehow they send Bond's car from London to Cuba to meet them just so they can drive to a meeting point with Jack Wade from the CIA who flies a plane in and then they swap. Product placement. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so And I was reading on the Wikipedia page that the deal happened so late that they couldn't work in another stunt um oh. they couldn't work in a, a way to use the car because there's all this setup with the car and then nothing that whole q scene is perilously close to being too jokey there's so oh, many yeah. like background gags and so on it's almost like something out of airplane yes yeah, it uh, even finishes cool. with a tag it finishes with a with a with a, a punchline yeah yes that's my you know, like, he's like well what does this do that's my lunch <laughs> it is and it's full of like guys in the background being blown up in telephone boxes I mean, and look, moved around and- i'm on i'm on record as loving that shit so i mean like you know <laughs> I'm, I'm on board but but you're right it is more of that stuff than we're used to <laughs> and then what i thought was really interesting is when he does the pen demonstration and he blows up a dummy and then he says don't say it and bond goes the writing's on the wall i went oh that's interesting because that's the the terrible song from spectre sorry i shouldn't say <laughs> yes. it's terrible Oh. I'm prejudging it, but it's crap. Um, no. <laughs> I'm so mean to that film. I, I'm going to have to really eat my words if it turns out it's good and I was just wrong all this time. Um, I think you'll have to order another lunch that day. <laughs> do you think the film is good? No. Oh, no. Okay. Be, uh, you, you won't be full up on your own words at all. Your, good. Your all words right. will, will, will stay going cold on your plate. <laughs> it took me a while to kind of go hang on a second have i been reading tom wrong this whole time no i just can't process jokes do you have an opinion on specter just sidebar thoughts on specter so before specter came out because I, I knew that there was this idea that we're going to try and take plot threads from the previous three films and try and braid them together and so before specter came out i sat down and rewatched the first three daniel craig films in order to be prepared for this and I can only uh, say that the film might have come out better if anyone writing Spectre had watched uh, the three previous yeah. Daniel Craig films before <laughs> opening the word processor, because nothing in that film makes the first bit of fucking sense. Oh. Uh, and what's what's particularly galling, I think, is that everybody loves Casino Royale, which is a complete emphatic break from the past. Very few people liked Quantum of Solace, which is a direct sequel to Casino Royale, the only time that's been attempted in the Bond franchise. Everybody loves Skyfall, which completely ignores the events of the previous two films. And the lesson <laughs> they learned from that was people want an arc plot. Yes. No, that's the last yes. thing you want. And, and also I... there's this thing that was kind of infecting franchise movies at the time yes. of surname reveals. 
Oh, that, like that's not a plot twist that somebody has a surname, whether it's Blofeld or Khan. I was going to say it's yeah, not, Khan. It's not a plot twist. <laughs> that, that was the other big one at the time where they swore up and down that uh, yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch was not Khan Noonien Singh uh, in Star Trek Into Darkness. And then, of course, he absolutely was. I wonder if that's the thing, though. It's harder to hide this stuff. If that's the case, then don't hang your movie on that twist. If the movie can't survive the twist leaking ahead of time, then you've written a bad movie. <laughs> And you mm. need to go back to the drawing board. I can watch Fight Club over and over again because Fight Club, well, first of all, Fight Club gets better when you know the twist mm. because you can see how carefully it's all been set up. But there's so much else going on. And also because the twist means something yes. to the characters, whereas most M. Night Shyamalan films I don't like watching once. And the good ones, <laughs> you can only watch once and then they completely <laughs> fall to pieces, especially in the village, for example, where the, the twist is never revealed to any of the protagonists. So there's mm. no emotional catharsis at all. We're just meant to sit back and admire the cleverness of the writer. And that's not <laughs> the kind of cinema I'm interested in. I want cinema which is going to involve me and engage me. As opposed to make you very conscious that someone's been very clever behind the scenes. Yeah. And like pointing themselves out in the script. Hey, everybody, I did this. Just letting you know. <laughs> yes. That's what's really interesting is because you have continuation with the Bond movies in those supporting characters like M and obviously M continues through Daniel Craig, but we've got Bill Tanner in this one and he stays the same. Money Penny, yeah, of course. Michael Kitchen, who's a lovely actor. He's a they, great they actor. They him back for the next one and they couldn't get him and they got Colin Salmon. And they also uh, used Colin Salmon a lot to do screen tests for Bond girls. And so there were rumours at one point that he was going to replace Pierce Brosnan. Oh, oh wow, okay. And then they're both in The World's Not Enough, aren't they? Yes, that's right. Yeah, they're different characters, but f- filling the same role. Is that right? No, no, they, they, they oh. reprise their same characters. Michael Kitchen as Tanner and Colin Salmon as Robinson, I think he is. Oh, that's what uh, I mean. Sorry, so, yes. So they've got yes. different names, but they're filling similar. Yeah, they fulfill the same plot function, but yeah, they, yes. didn't, they didn't give Colin Salmon Michael Kitchen's character's name. It's interesting that they didn't bring back, well, we talked about this last week with License to Kill, but they didn't. They definitely made that split from Felix Leiter as well by creating the Jack Wade character. Although they did bring Joe Don Baker back to play that, and he was in Living Daylights. Yeah. Yes. Which is really interesting. And he's very fun. I would argue that he's better used to his strengths in this film than in The Living Daylights because he can play up that comedic role and he's kind of yeah. a comedic villain in Living Daylights. Um, does he come back for another film? Is he, he, he's in, in um, Tomorrow Never Dies, isn't he? I think he is. I know that Robbie Coltrane comes back for The World Is Not Enough. Yes, when he's, he, he's about 25% as much fun as he was in this film. Yes. <laughs> Oh, he's so good. It, 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 you're right. I think this film just establishes and brings you in with all these characters straight away. And so when Sean Bean does turn up, as you say, it's a real, oh, my God, it's him. They've set him up and we've forgotten about him, but it makes sense that it would be him. And as I said before, given how little action there is in this film, I think that's a real testament to how involved in the story we actually are. Mm. And Tomorrow Never Dies takes the almost exactly opposite approach. It barely pauses for breath at all. And I think it's weaker because of it. That's so interesting because if you had said that to me before re-watching this film, that there's not a lot of action in GoldenEye, I would have been like, what are you talking about? There's the car chase the down the The action that, that is there is fucking fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's not overstuffed. It's not like that whole Hollywood rule of you need to have something action happen every seven minutes or whatever it is. The fights um, in this movie are out of this world. They are fantastic. 
like brutal, like you believe that they are beating the crap out of each other. The fighting between Sean Bean and Pierce Brosnan, they did a lot of that themselves, mm. particularly in that last sequence anyway. It looks great. It really does, and it's it's just convincing. Apparently the character of Alec Trevelyan was going to be an older character initially and more like a mentor to Bond, like an older mentor. And then when they cast Sean Bean, they rewrote him to be his peer. And I'm so glad they did because it, it fits in so well with the Yanis device and the light mm. and dark of Bond. And Totally. Much, much better. Otherwise, the end of this would have been like the end of John Wick with uh, Pierce Brosnan beating up a pensioner. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so you get that tension all the way to the end and they're they're literally fighting down that antenna or as I called it earlier, a sticky thing. Um, <laughs> I think Pierce Brosnan actually injured himself on that ladder stunt. You know, he goes down, Trevelyan's about to kill him and he hits the brake mm. or whatever it is and slides the ladder down. And then Trevelyan like comes down after him and does the slide down the, down the arrow and apparently Pierce Brosnan was hurt during that whole stunt filming. And then he does press his hand off and... and Pierce Brosnan tumble rolls flush down the ladder. And having you point out that photo to me, Tom, with the sideways stuff, you (laughs) realise, oh, that's a sideways tumble. It looks really strange. It's like how could someone fall off or be kicked (laughs) off this thing, but they roll down perfectly vertically and are able to grab, you know, the next thing to hang on to underneath. So that's the only little flaw that I could find in that whole fight scene. But they're, they're literally fighting on a vertical plane going further down, 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 down until Pierce drops um, Trevelyan off by his shoe. And I'll tell you something else I noticed at the very end of this film. You know, you go and see an action film today, Bond or Marvel or anything, and the titles are 50% CGI artists. Mm. Yes. And then about 10% stunt performers. There are nine stunt performers credited at the end of GoldenEye. Wow. That's incredible. They would be like the interns on a modern Bond film. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. It really shows the inventiveness of of what they had to do at the time. And I suppose they would have had the money because they would have money in the bank. But actually I saw a really interesting story that will probably make Stu laugh um, potentially more than uh, you, Tom, unless you have a a deep knowledge of Australian business dealings in the late eighties. But one of the people kind of responsible for the legal trouble that happened between license to kill and Goldeneye. So there were legal problems between Metro Golden Mayer, who was the parent company of United Artists, mm-hmm. and uh, Dan Jack, which is uh, and, and having troubles with with um, Broccoli's company Dan Jack. So they were in conflict. And one of the reasons was in 1990, MGM United Artists was supposed to be sold for 1.5 billion dollars to a little company called Quintex. Oh, which God. means that that's Alan Bonds company no no no. it's christopher skase skase's company right okay christopher skase was in some way responsible for us not getting another timothy dalton movie Uh, somehow i always knew (laughs) so tom for your benefit in the late 80s or i suppose in the 80s in australia we had this sort of fantastic national trend of having charismatic billionaires making (laughs) shitloads of money on the 80s stock market and real estate and they started buying up tv stations and media and famously, Kerry Packer, who's this long-standing owner of Channel 9, sold Channel 9 to Alan Bond for an extraordinary amount of money. Alan Bond then went bust and Kerry Packer bought it back for about 10 bucks and a packet of chips. So Christopher Scase was like another one of these guys. 
who was a journalist to start with and then became this financial business guy and had a shitload of money, bought Channel 7. He set up resorts here in Queensland. He had hovercrafts running (laughs) up and down the Brisbane River. And then everything collapsed and he ended up doing a bunk over to Mallorca and living on the lamb in Mallorca. And they were trying to extradite him back here to face court, but he was very sick and he ended up dying. So he's a very famous kind of Australian dodgy businessman figure. When I read that, I went, oh, my God. So, yes. So they were supposed to buy MGM because they had all this 80s money, but then they couldn't prove that they had the money to secure it. So the deal fell apart. And then there were all sorts of other studios getting involved. People were trying to sell off the rights to screen Bond films cheap so they could get the money to help the sale go through. And that angered Broccoli and all of that sort of stuff. So that was part of the reason for all of that legal hell is dodgy Australian business businessman Christopher Scase. So what you're telling wow. me is that he's a uh, he's an eccentric billionaire who owns hovercrafts and he <laughs> tried to stop James Bond. Yeah. So he's literally a Bond villain. Yeah. And Alan Bond was famous in the 80s too, apparently, for having uh, airships. That was his thing. Yeah, yeah. He had, he had blimps. <laughs> he had blimps. So these guys were just playing at being Bond villain. <laughs> like, you can understand why he wanted to own the studio that made Bond because... So this this weird habit of Australia producing in the 80s, these um, strange billionaire businessmen who all went broke in the 90s, either died overseas or went to jail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the world of uh, business in Australia. So I guess we should start to bring this thing to a close because we've been chatting about this movie for ages. But much like the movie, it doesn't feel long to me anyway. You know, it doesn't feel Have any like of your podcast so far been longer than the movie you're talking about. Not for not this series. <laughs> I've been very cautious to try to make sure that they all come in around an hour thirty, an hour forty, which is well below a general Bond running time. Yeah. Unless we, you know, we have to do a retake of Thunderball and we decide to do the full sixteen day. <laughs> <laughs> We'll do it properly this time. That's right. Uh Yeah, so, I mean, for me, the legacy of this film is that it defined Brosnan's time or it, it kind of came out of the gate so strong, so enthralling, so fun. It did new things, but it kept the DNA of Bond. I've read some critical reviews of Pierce that some were very immediately glowing and said he's a much better improvement on Timothy Dalton, but some were actually said, oh, he's still not very humorous. Where's the humor gone? And I went, he's he's joking all the time in this. He makes so many puns in this movie. So many jokes. So I think he, and he can deliver them really well. Like he can, he can mm. deliver these things straight facedly, but just with that little eyebrow raise or the little we aim to please or um, one rises to meet an occasion or there's just so many <laughs> tick jokes in this. Yes. There's, well, there's that great I, sequence with Money Penny, who I quite like this Money Penny, Samantha Bond, and she's interrupted a date to come back to the office. She calls him out and says this behaviour could be construed as sexual harassment. And he's like, what's the punishment for that? She says, someday you have to make good on your innuendos. <laughs> I love that. I love, I love that they reference the whole changing nature of workplace relationships for the better, I should add, in the real terms. But that these characters have a spark and a flirtatious relationship and that's part of them. So they, they keep that. So, yeah. So as we move towards ranking it, I was really thinking going into this film, I was like, this film has always been number three on my list. Goes okay. Goldfinger, yeah. Spy Who Loved Me, Goldeneye. And I thought, 
could I actually be at the point of ranking it above Spy Who Loved Me in terms of how much fun I have watching it and how much I love right. it? And and I've just backed back away from that. I, I still think I'm comfortable with it in third spot, but it's definitely in third spot for me. It's it's Goldfinger, Spy Who Loved Me, Goldeneye with a bullet. And I wish that I was a more sophisticated person and could change my mind, but that they legitimately just the films that really speak to me. And I think, if anything, it could tie with The Spy Who Loved Me, but I feel like that could be, I don't know, do I... Look, where would you rank it, Stu? And maybe I'll change my mind. Yeah, well, look, look, that's really interesting because I have it almost in the exactly the same spot. So my my current list is uh, number one, Goldfinger, From Russia With Love in number two. And then I have The Spy Who Loved Me in number three. I can't put Goldeneye ahead of The Spy Who Loved Me. I love The Spy Who Loved Me. Mm. Like, I was surprised by how much I love that movie on, on the rewatch that we're, that we're doing. It just is such, it's such an iconic film. It's such a incredible distillation of, of the Roger Moore era of the yeah. franchise. And it specifically has a lot of things in it that people think of when they think of James Bond. You know, I, I, I think GoldenEye doesn't necessarily have that iconic sort of thing to it, even though it is the good Pierce Brosnan one. But it is, in its own way, an excellent Bond film and just a solid action movie so I, I it's definitely going in my number four spot right below the spy who loved me well yeah i think for me it's a similar thing like goldfinger is kind of the the gold standard yeah the gold standard and spy who loved me is just the the most perfect roger moore everything about it just works it's silly it's fun but it remains so solid and yeah i think goldeneye is just i, lo- I love it and i can't really place it any lower than that because the oh, next no. is Diamonds Are Forever, which I think we've discussed, I probably misplaced somewhere in there. But um, I still, I mean, look, it's a movie that I always will end up watching if it's on TV, and that's kind of part of my reasoning for these things. But I just, you know, when I was watching this film, I was so excited, and I was like, I haven't seen this in years, and why? Like, normally I would watch this every year, or it would be on TV, and I just haven't kind of sat down and watched it. I went, but it still all holds up. It's still so much fun. Um, the characters are great. Boris with his I Am Invincible, and then being covered in liquid nitrogen at the end. <laughs> um the tina turner song at the start with the credits i love everything about that and just that you know bada, it triggers like sense memory in me so much mm. this film so yeah i think i'm i'm happy to put it in number three and so the list changes again what will be interesting is where all the other pierce brosnan's fit in because mm. i have a lot of affection well tomorrow never dies and the world is not enough i do have affection for die another day i'll be interested to see how i find it because <laughs> there's elements about it like as tom was saying particularly in the first half that are really good and quite clever but then there's also halle berry she's fine <laughs> she's fine i guess i did a thing on my blog years ago uh where i went through all the bond films and instead of ranking them i gave each one a prize for best four Oh, okay. I can't remember what I, can't remember like what I gave Goldeneye the best, best for prize. Uh, maybe best. best, maybe that was best villain or best twist. Uh, but I do remember I gave Dine of the Day best fight brackets found weapons close brackets because that sword fight is fantastic. Mm. Oh, between the two women. Oh no, between Bond and oh. um, yeah, 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 and Toby Stevens. That's right. It's excellent. It's really, really good. That whole fencing, white fencing things, and the have to draw blood. I just I love the way that you can Bond can meet someone and then within about ten minutes agreeing to like yes let's do a sword fight where we fight to, <laughs> to draw blood. Yes. First one from the torso. Yeah, it's just ridiculous, I, but exactly I, the right kind of ridiculous. Yes, exactly, exactly. Found objects, yeah, for sure. 
Okay. So, Tom, what are your kind of exit thoughts on GoldenEye and how you see it in the scheme of things? I don't think I said before, I've got about five films which are kind of jockeying for place in the number one spot, including mm. many of the ones you've mentioned, and including Casino Royale and Skyfall, which I, both, I think are both terrific, and I kind of flip-flop about which one I prefer on any given day. Uh, this is really good, and I think it's very easy for us to overlook what an achievement it was at the time. As we said, all of these other action films that have been eating Bond's lunch, the fact that Bond pictures were not losing money, but they were certainly beginning to tail off in their appeal. And then to be away for six years and come back with this, that's remarkable. Um, oh, one thing I wanted to point out as well, the structure of the beginning of the film reflects the fact that Bond's been away for a while because we have this Bond and Trevelyan against the Cold War enemy and then we have the title sequence and then we come back in a different time frame. But it's not six years later, it's nine years later. Yes. And that means that the early scene takes place in 1986. Mm. which means this film has just erased License to Kill and The Living Daylights. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which is kind of weird. It is a strange gap, but I suppose they need to make that transition from full-on USSR chemical weapons factory stuff to well into the new Russia. Yeah. So maybe they had to expand it to make that. I mean, Pierce Brosnan looks exactly the same. So. <laughs> oh, and speaking of injuries, this is the, 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 the only film where he doesn't have that scar on his lip. Has he got that on Tomorrow Never Dies? Oh, he has really? A scar on his lip? He's got a, a little scar on his next to his filtrum. I'm just googling Pierce Brosnan's scar. Pierce Brosnan has really gone like old man of the forest. Like he's really. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, he he grew a beard as soon as he could. He's gone full kind of silver fox with the big beard, and um, he's in that uh, Eurovision movie which I haven't seen yet, but I think he's playing Will Ferrell's dad, which has got to be a bit of a stretch. Like. <laughs> He's, what, maybe 15 years older than Will Ferrell, you know? Did you see um, that commentary he did for GoldenEye? I saw a little bit During of it. He, he appeared to, like, have had a couple of drinks and just be settling in for a really good night. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad he got to be Bond. I think he so, looks so like him in, in this film. And his blue eyes are just extraordinary. Again, I'm, I'm going into objectification territory but he's just got this beautiful <laughs> and that's the first thing you see of him is his eyes when he's, uh, he's, yes. he's bungee jumped off this uh dam and then he's trying to get his access point doesn't say where alex came in on that thing he got in another way obviously yes and you should probably <laughs> just shout out for natalia um isabella skoropko who we haven't really mentioned but she's great i love her she's the female lead and she spends basically the entire movie in the same outfit and gotta say her hair and makeup is flawless she's literally <laughs> been under a collapsing satellite dish after a mass murder has happened has to get out via husky and turns up in you know st petersburg or moscow wherever she turns up is flawless hair and makeup clearly her clothes don't even stink a little bit <laughs> it's so interesting with her in this film because she you're, you're right she is great and, and she's wonderful as the as the bond girl and then as soon as the movie's over i it just i'm like oh I, I completely forgot that she was in this movie it's crazy and i don't know that she's done much since because famke jansen of course went on to, to do x-men and things sure. like that but i think isabella skoropko's french possibly or danish or something swedish i believe swedish there you go so yeah maybe she just does stuff in her own country as opposed to i like to throw him back in bond's face go ahead shoot him he means nothing to me yeah but she is a little bit kind of generic feisty bond girl she doesn't have a lot of personality of her own which is a bit of a shame but there's so much else going on in this film and there are so many big personalities mm. it's possible that if they tried to give her more to do it would have over you know, would have unbalanced it 
or that it was just always going to be an uphill battle, no matter what they give her. She's always going to be overshadowed by Alan Cumming and Sean Bean and Robbie yeah. Coltrane and all these. Gottfried John, who we haven't mentioned either, who I think oh, yes. is, very, is tons of fun as Oromov, not a starry name unlike those others, but uh, doesn't he do a good job as Oromov? And there's, mm. there's just a moment when that Minister of Defence has got Bond and Natalia in the cell where I thought, are we going to get into that octopusy problem again where we've got too many villains all with their competing agendas and then it all just goes away? It all becomes yes. suddenly very simple. <laughs> again it's just sean bean doing a robbery yeah Yeah. and he just because he just shoots the minister the russian minister for (laughs) defense and then says ah no it was james bond who did it that's what i'll say and yeah they they get Mm. rid of potential obstacles before they can become obstacles and it gives a justification for the chase and um no i was going to say about natalia she does an excellent kind of wry knowing smile there's a few moments where, particularly when she's um, screwed Boris's plans and, uh, you know, is sending the satellite to burn up on entry and she's just kind of smiling like, I got you, I got you, because he's so mean to her and, mm. like, he, he treats her like a sex object at Sevenaya and then is, you know, screaming at her to give him the codes and she's just like, nah, you're boned. <laughs> and she calls Bond out on a bit of his bullshit too because he's having a bit of a quiet, sad moment looking into the sea in Cuba. And obviously, before they left for Cuba, she did a big shopping trip and was able to get some beautiful clothes, including a very sexy white bikini and sarong number. And she's sort of really upfront with him about, hey, now you'll kill him. And then she kind of turns and and spits at him, you know, do you think I'm impressed by this, you and your killing and your toys and... Yeah, and then they just make out. Um, but <laughs> it, it does undercut her point a little. Yeah, it's, it, it's not entirely clear what they're going for there. So it seems that Bond is having an introspective moment, but it's not a moment of, oh, everything I've ever done is a lie. It's more, oh, I've been betrayed by a friend that I thought I had. And as you said, Tom, it goes back to that thematic unity of what is my place here? Like everything is changing or has changed. Like this whole film, it's a it's a balancing act. She's not the kind of wet blanket Bond girl that we've seen in some of the poorer films, like well, especially Stacey Sutton in The View to a Kill. <laughs> Nor is she. You might have to explain who Stacey Sutton is uh, for Stu. Um, yeah, I'm not. drawing a blank. <laughs> Strange. Um, as far as Stu is concerned, uh, Roger Moore just got around that whole movie second half by himself. Um. Yeah, well, uh, he, he might as well have done. Um, so, yeah, she's not that, but nor is she a completely three-dimensional character in her own right. She's not Vespa from Casino Royale, for example. Yeah. But she's exactly poised so that you don't want her to be either one or the other. That kind of careful judgment, that balancing act is throughout this film. I think a lot of the credit has to go to Martin Campbell, who directed it. Mm. Because that is one of the, even in a film like this, where the director is answerable to the producers, I think the director is uniquely positioned to control the tone of the film. And that's what they get absolutely right all the way along the line in this in this movie and why I think it is so fondly remembered by so many people. Well, that is a lovely way to wrap it up. So um, I, I'm sad to stop talking about Goldeneye. I've just had so much fun with this podcast. I mean, have fun every week, of course, but um, for a movie that had such an impact on me, did you see it at the cinema, Stu? You're a... You're a Similar vintage. Yeah, similar, similar vintage. I, I didn't see this at the cinema, but I, we definitely, I, I rented it on home video multiple times because uh, I loved this movie when I was a kid. Pierce Brosnan was was my James Bond. Yeah, and that's the same. And you always, and I'm just, I'm really glad that he had that amazing first movie. In contrast, because you know, Goldfinger and Spy Who Loved Me are like the third movies. Mm for their respective bonds and this is his first and I don't think he ever quite recaptures the 
spark of this one. And that's no. maybe not – that's maybe unfair, but the movies – No, no, that's pretty fair. <laughs> They're not quite as memorable as this one. So I'm glad he has it and I'm glad it's as much as I would have liked a Dalton third film. I think what Tom says about having that break and having that gap and that breathing room. And I think Pierce was out with everything to prove, you know, he's been tied to this role on and off for over a decade. And have you guys seen everything or nothing? I have never heard of that. So this was a documentary film about James Bond that came out, I think to coincide with probably was to be, was to coincide with Skyfall. I think it was the 50th anniversary. Oh yes. yep, Yep. Yep. And it goes through the whole history of James Bond from Ian Fleming to all the movies to the present day. And it's got new interviews with all the Bonds except Connery, who's represented by old footage. And it does does a beautiful job. There's a bit of Pierce Brosnan saying, I can remember Martin Campbell saying to me, better be fucking good, Sonny. Better be fucking good. Go on, scream as well. Better be fucking good. (laughs) 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 Oh, but guys, if you haven't seen that movie, you've got to. It's fantastic. Yeah, that's that's Uh, on the watch list now. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining us again. It's been lovely to have you. Um, Always a pleasure. Please, if you have not already, take a listen to Best Pick Pod, which is yes. Tom's podcast. Stu and I were discussing this last week. Um, we've both been uh, binging on it. It's so fantastic, Tom. I just I oh, put it on you. and I'm, I'm like, it's just the perfect kind of lockdown distraction i don't mean distraction in a bad way but in a in a true (laughs) in a true oh okay because you tell stories about different films that are made and then you're also knowledgeable and you all have seen so much and (laughs) it's it makes me and natalie famously has seen so little (laughs) (laughs) but it's not like i think um (laughs) you're able to talk so confidently about you know, technical things that I, I can't ever summon the words for because I think you need to have that filmic language by by seeing a lot of film. So, yeah, I definitely feel a, I'm learning a lot through listening to the podcast. And I always love it when I know a story that you're about to tell because I got super into classic Hollywood in my teens. So occasionally there's stories that um, you guys talk about that I go, oh, I know that one. All right. <laughs> but it's really lovely to learn. So definitely search that out. Best Pick Pod. Uh, you can also follow Tom on Twitter. Are you at Tom Selinski? Have I got that right? That's right, yes. Stu, of course, is at Disco Stew. I am at Girl Clumsy. Definitely check out my website, nataliebohensky.com. That's Bohensky with a B-O-C-H. All of my written essays that accompany these podcasts go up there and uh, would love you to read them because I'm putting a lot of work into them. And uh, for Patreon people who support me, thank you for doing that and allowing me to put that work in. Blatant self-plug there. I think that's it for now. We will be back next week with Tomorrow Never Dies and uh, Terry Hatcher. So something to look forward to. There's a name to conjure with. I think that's it. So I guess we'll say thank you so much to Tom. Thank you for having me. And uh, until next time, I'm Natalie. And I'm Stu. And we're shaken, not stirred. Dun, 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 dun. I love that song so much. Dun, 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 dun.